Good morning, everyone. My name is Sheila Hahn. Please remain standing as I read today's scripture from Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to his face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sheila, and you all may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Dave Hahn, and I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is always my privilege to open God's Word with and for you today. When I was a kid, probably when most of you were kids as well, one of the most dreaded events that you could experience was to be part of a schoolyard game where sides needed to be chosen. Things like kickball or dodgeball or basketball. So I don't know, as I was thinking about it, if it's worse being a captain of the team or to be one of the kids on the other side waiting to be chosen. As a captain, you would have to agonize over whether to pick your friends who might stink or to pick the better athletes who are ultimately going to help you win. But if you were one of the many kids in line, you'd have to watch as people got picked over you and then pray that you would not be the last one picked. Sadly, the associated anxieties associated with that childhood kind of rite of passage don't go away in adulthood. They just take different shapes, those anxieties. So in adulthood, those anxieties are not generally associated with games like kickball. We don't play as many games as we get older and don't necessarily do it that way. The anxieties are associated with the position that you're hiring for or that you are applying for. The home that you are selling or the home that you want to put an offer in on and hope that you get it. The parties that you throw and who to invite or the ones that you wish you were invited to. Who should I pick? Will I be the one who gets chosen. That's how we think about it. And we are all affected by these anxious moments for most of our lives, I think. And it's often difficult for us to choose when we have to choose, but it's even more difficult, I think, not to be chosen. But to be chosen, that is the best. That's the best, right? 
Being chosen tends to be this huge boost to our ego. It gives us bragging rights if we're so inclined to do that. It means to us that we matter, that we're probably a little bit better than others, and that we're worth involving in something. That's how we think about it, right? See, that, my friends, is how you and I choose. And it's how we feel about being chosen as human beings. But choosing and the consequences of choosing are not original to us, and they're not unique to us. Like most things, choice began and it finds its perfection in God. The whole of the Bible is a story of a God who, before time began, chose how, who, what, when, where, and why everything would happen to his glory even the things we don't understand, even the things we don't like. It's the story of a loving, faithful God who chose a very unlikely people for himself, their generational faithlessness toward him, and then his relentless pursuit and rescue of them. And what you come to discover as you learn about God and his people is that God doesn't choose the way that you and I do. He seems to do the opposite of what we would do in both his choosing and in his faithfulness to the often faithless people he has chosen. So over the next few months, we're going to look at in our new series the stories of those that God chose for himself, how they responded to having been chosen, both righteously and sinfully, and then how God in his love remained faithful to them when you, me, and everyone else would have given up on them. And then, prayerfully, you and I will see our loving and our faithful God more clearly and more beautifully in and through their stories, recognizing that you and I, too, have been unfaithful. But God has been good to us, and he has been faithful to us, and he has chosen us Nonetheless, specifically, we're going to be looking at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of those that surround each of them. But today is really just an introduction to the overarching themes that we're going to explore in this series. And those themes are encapsulated well in the passage that we looked at today that Sheila read for us. So the book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses at the end of Israel's wandering in the desert for 40 years. This is after God had rescued and, re and redeemed them from captivity in Egypt, as was recorded in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Now Moses, as we know, had already given the law to one generation of Israelites. And now, a new generation had grown up, a generation born of those who had originally received the law, and they grew up in the desert with little to no remembrance of their Egyptian captivity. And before they entered into the land that God had promised them, Moses knew and wanted them to know that they needed to know who God was, who they were, and how they were to live before him. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. So let's look again at verses 6 through 8 of Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, 
And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The people of God, my friends, are always called to live according to their God-given identity. Our identity, my friends, is what produces our behavior. Our behavior does not give us an identity. It is merely the byproduct of our identity. And we talk about that idea often. It's likely not the first time you've heard us say something like that. And the reason that we talk about it so often is because it really is everywhere in Scripture. We find it here again in these three verses that I just read. Notice, my friends, that the verbs used to describe Israel, the people of God, in these verses are present tense. They're not future tense. They are not past tense. It does not say you will be or were holy. It does not say you will be or were chosen. It does not say you will be or were a treasured possession, as though we can affect or lose our identity through our own efforts. God tells Israel, this is who you are. This is who you are, now and forever, because I have declared you to be so. So Christian, as God's people understand that we are holy in our standing before God long before we are actually holy in our conduct. To be holy, my friends, does not mean perfect. It does not mean that you don't do any wrong. What it means is that you are set apart by God for his purposes. And as those who are set apart for God and by God, our lives look different than those who are not holy. In that, we live our lives for, in, and with God rather than for, in, and with ourselves or the world. And God choosing people to be his holy nation and treasured possessions has nothing to do with them, but it has everything to do with him. That's what these three verses tell us. It is not like a kickball game in a schoolyard. It is not like that. Because when we choose, whether it be kickball or otherwise, we tend to pick the best and the brightest. But when God chooses, right, he seems to pick the least likely and the least qualified. You see it over and over again throughout God's word, including here in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Of all the peoples on earth, Israel was not the best. It was not the mightiest. And it was not the largest. Rather, they were the fewest. That's what it says here in verse 7. And in all likelihood, in addition to all of that, they were likely not the loveliest or the kindest or the smartest or the wisest or the craftiest or the richest either. So why then 
did God choose them when we wouldn't have? Well, we find the answer to why God chose them in verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose them? Because he loves them. He chose them because he chose them. And he loved them because he loves them. That's it. It's the only reason that we're given. And here lies, my friends, the beauty within that reasoning. This is why I love this so much. To be loved that way and to be chosen for such reasons keeps us humble and it keeps us secure. It keeps us humble and it keeps us secure. Humble in the sense that no one, no one gets to brag about being chosen or the things about them that caused them to be chosen. And as such, belonging to God and being among his chosen should not and cannot lead to elitism or arrogance. It cannot and should not lead to us feeling elite or arrogant because we are just as unworthy as anyone and we are superior to no one. As Christians, we are just as unworthy as anyone and we are superior to no one. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as the worst of all sinners. And he wrote one-third of the New Testament. Still, as one who killed and imprisoned God's people, an argument could be made that his self-assessment was right. Except for the love and the grace of God upon him. The same sheer love and grace that God has extended to you and to me. If we know Christ. Now, one of my favorite verses on this whole idea in the New Testament is in Ephesians 2. It's relatively familiar if you've been around for a bit. Verses 8 through 9 of Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, listen, no one may boast. By grace through faith. Why? So no one can boast. No one. It's all grace. The undeserved and unmerited favor of God. Even the faith, my friends, that you and I have put in Jesus is a gift that God has given you. Even the faith that you have to believe is a gift. All of it is grace and faith. All of it is not your own doing. And no good work can earn it for you. So why did God do it this way? Why did God do it this way? We just talked about it. So that we cannot boast. Because if any part of our salvation was connected to something that we did, no matter how small, we would brag about it. We would. If there was any part of our salvation that we could take credit for, we would brag about it. Well, I put 
my faith in Jesus. I decided to follow him. Oh, really? Well, where did that faith come from? Where did that faith come from? Where did your understanding of God and your sin and his salvation come from? See, friends, faith is not something that we are born with, leaving us to find the right object or the right person to put that faith in. And then if we choose wisely, we get to gloat and judge others all the way to heaven, right? No. No, no, no. Friends, we are born spiritually dead. We are born as enemies of God with nothing to brag about and nothing to boast in. God went looking for and he chose us so that we would believe. Because God in his holiness and in his sovereignty knew that we would not choose him if it were left up to us. If left to our own devices, you and I would not have chosen him. Never. We would always have chosen ourselves. Always. If you want proof of that, look at Adam and Eve. Okay? Adam and Eve were born into the Garden of Eden. Perfect harmony on the earth, perfect harmony and peace with God himself, and they went their own way, wanting to determine good and evil for themselves. And so have we. So have we. So, if you are a part of God's holy, chosen, treasured people, understand that God's grace has made you so apart from any work that you have done. You believe because by his Holy Spirit, he has opened your heart and he has given you the faith to believe. That's why you believe. Because God by his Spirit has opened your heart and made you new that you would believe. Now last, one last observation on verse six that I think is critical. Let me read it again for us. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Notice that it does not say, for you are a person holy to the Lord. It says people. You are a holy people. Now, certainly there is an individual and a personal aspect to our faith but not, my friends, at the expense of the many others God has called for himself. Your brothers and your sisters in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, God is building a new kingdom. He is building a new people, and he is building a new family of believers. And what kingdoms and peoples and families have in common is community, togetherness, and none of those things, kingdoms, peoples, families, work when individualism is a person's primary mode of operation. None of those things work when you have people just living individual lives. Lives where we, we don't truly know, love, or live alongside others at a heart level. His intent was always that we would be a people unto him. 
So recognize, my friends, that what you are being called into, if you are among the chosen of God, and there is no way around this, is a kingdom and a community at its highest level. You are being called into a community of believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ at its highest level. And kingdoms and peoples and families, my friends, are just shadows of the realities that we find in God. The kingdoms we find on earth, the people groups we find on earth, the communities and the families that we find on earth, they're just shadows of what God is doing and what God is building. It is the church of Jesus Christ, both globally and locally, that we are to be deeply connected to. So that means that church jumping and Sunday service attendance alone cannot get us there. We can't find gospel community and be part of the kingdom of God and be part of the family of God if we don't stick around often enough and long enough and deeply enough to actually know and care for others as they know and care about us. So find a body of believers to belong to and then be intentional about being known and loved among them. Even as you come to know and love others and you are certainly, certainly, certainly welcome to do that here. You are certainly welcome to do that here. But if not here, do it somewhere find a body of believers to be part of. Because my friends, if we all did that, if we all did that, the watching world would take notice of how radically different our holy community is. And they would long to be part of it. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You have to love one another. And in order to love one another, there have to be another's around you to love. As Pastor Tim Keller noted, God's holy nation is one built on self-sacrifice, not self-promotion. One built on service, not power. One built on care for the poorest and the weakest, not survival of the fittest. That's what makes us a holy community. We live differently for God, with God, and in God. And my friends, that God shows us in his grace and sovereignty really should humble us. I hope it does. But it also, as I mentioned, should give us security. Security in the sense that we no longer need to feel pressure to measure up. We don't need to feel the weight of performance or the dread of failing to meet expectations. We don't need to feel the pressure to measure up the weight of performance or the dread of failing to meet expectations because that is not why he chose us in the first place. That's not why he chose us in the first place. So if you know that someone has chosen you because of something special about you or because of a certain skill set you possess and then you underperform in some ways, it really is wise to be worried about disappointing that person or getting kicked off the proverbial team. But friends, God doesn't need us. Do you know that? He does not need us. 
He doesn't need anyone or anything. And he doesn't personally benefit from having loved or chosen us. We bring nothing to him except our broken selves. We bring nothing to him except our broken selves, to which he says, that's all I want. That's all I want. I don't need it, but I want it. I don't need you, but boy, do I want you in all your brokenness. He simply and wonderfully loves us and wants us for who we are as we are. With all our sinful inadequacies, with all our foibles and weaknesses and ugliness, and even with our recurring desire to kick him off of his throne, he still wants us. He loves us and he chooses us anyway. But he does not leave us in our brokenness. He doesn't leave us there. In his love, he makes us new. By grace and through faith, he justifies us and he sanctifies us. And ultimately, one day, he will glorify us. So, as God's chosen, holy, treasured people, how then should we live? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. We'll finish up the text. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So life as the chosen of God begins with first knowing who God is. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. In verse 9, we find God describing himself in two different ways. First, as the God of all gods, capital G and then small g. And the second way he describes himself incredibly is as Israel's personal God as the Lord your God, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. That is God's personal name unto God's people. So, the Lord your God, Yahweh, is God. God says to his people, I am not only the God, but I am your God. I am the God, but I'm also your God. Which echoes Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, he's the Lord, but he's my shepherd. Do you know and do you love God this way, my friends? Do you know and love him this way? Not just as the God who makes, sustains, and rules all things, but as your God yours because that is how God has revealed himself to us it is who God wants to be to you and it is possible by grace and through faith to know and love him that way it's incredible 
and upon God's self-declaration to say, I am the Lord God, your God, we are given two choices. When someone makes a declaration like that, there are two choices. You reject him or you worship him. That's it. Worship him. So where are you today? Where are you today? Continuing in verse 9, God goes on to describe himself to his people as faithful and one who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. So in the week ahead, we're going to be looking deeper at the idea of covenant and then how faithfulness is connected to it. But for now, let's just say this. A covenant is different than a contract. A covenant is different than a contract. Contracts can be broken if one party fails to meet their end of it. Right? So if you hire somebody to work in your house, you sign a contract. I promise to pay you this so long as you do this. And if that person doesn't do that thing, you are no longer contractually obligated to do your part. Whereas covenants are different. They are to be fulfilled regardless of the behavior of the other party. So Christian marriage is probably the best and the greatest example of a covenant as far as an earthly example of it. It is two people saying in a Christian context, I promise to take you, love you, honor you, keep you, and cherish you no matter what, no matter what, until death parts us. No matter what you do, I promise to do these things unto and for you. I'll be faithful to do all these things even if you do not. That's a covenant. That's Christian marriage. And it is an extraordinary declaration, promise, and commitment to make. And as such, we ought not enter into marriage lightly. We ought not enter into covenants lightly. Because marriage in particular, within the covenant of marriage in particular, that relationship alone serves as an earthly picture of how God has loved and covenanted with us. Do you know that that's what our marriages are meant to reflect to a watching world and to one another? But Dave, isn't God speaking more in contractual terms than he is covenantal terms in verses 9 through 11? Well, seemingly he is. And it really is easy to think so based on some of the terminology that we find in those verses. But we do need to look further and we need to look deeper than just that surface reading. My friends, God has, does, and shall keep his covenant and his promises for all generations. And we will look at how he does that in just a bit. But let me first look at the idea that now that God's identity and Israel's identity has been established, there is a part of the covenant that belongs to God's people. It says... Verse 11, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The part of the covenant that belongs to the people of God is singular, and it's here in verse 11, to obey God by keeping his commandments. That's their part. The laws, commandments, and statutes of God are all found in the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and this book, Deuteronomy. And within those books, those five books, 
we find 613 laws, commandments, and statutes for God's people to obey. Laws given to give and preserve both physical and spiritual life. That's why they were given. Laws given not to steal joy, but to give it. Not to harm us, but to protect us. Not to enslave us, but to free us. Is that how we see God's commands? Look again at verse 8. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Would a God who freed his people do so only to then enslave them with his law? Does that make any sense? That God would free them from captivity only to put them under a different kind of captivity? No. His intent is to give and to rescue and to restore. That's the purpose. And from the moment that Adam and Eve first disobeyed God, do you know that sin entered into the world and in so doing, it killed us and it enslaved us. Look again at Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Listen to Romans 6, beginning in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Listen, either of sin which leads to death, so that's not great, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Do you realize that you either are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you are a slave to righteousness, which leads to life? God in his goodness, my friends, gave us his law to guard us against sin's presence and sin's power until his Messiah would come. Read Galatians 3 verses 23 and 24 today. You will learn the purpose and the beauty of the law in the context of what it means to be a new covenant believer. And it was and is through the Messiah, God's own son, that the covenant he established with both Abraham and his offspring, what we call the nation of Israel, would find fulfillment. It was and is through the Messiah that the covenant would find fulfillment. So friends, over the next several weeks, we will see the individual and generational sinfulness of God's chosen people on display. You will not have to look far but we will also see God's promises and God's faithfulness remain upon those people. Because my friends, for 2,000 years, from Abraham to Jesus Christ himself, God's holy and chosen people had sinned while God remained faithful. And it was through Jesus Christ, God's holy son and Israel's Messiah that God fulfilled his covenant by himself for us. He fulfilled both sides of the covenant on our behalf. 
Looking at verses 9 through 11 again, we do see expectations put upon God's people if they were to remain in his love. And his people were commanded to love him and to keep his commands. And for those who hated him, repayment and punishment and destruction was to be expected, right? We do see, my friends, throughout the Old Testament, God disciplining his people. And discipline is different than punishment. And then, through his people, we see him punishing and destroying those who opposed him. Just look back at the first five verses of this same chapter. And though God's people did not love him as they ought, and though they did not perfectly keep his commands, his people remained a people, and they were blessed by him. So, is God a liar? Is God a liar? Did he just turn a a blind eye to their disobedience and just punished the other people? No. See, my friends, God, and this is the amazing beauty of this, God is not bound by time, nor does he see things linearly, meaning moment by moment, as we do. And as such, he is able to see at once, listen, the disobedience of his people and the perfect obedience of his son. He is at once able to see the disobedience of his people spanning generations, backwards and forwards, and he is also at the same time able to see the perfect obedience of his son. In Jesus Christ, we have one who loved and obeyed God perfectly where you and I and thousands of generations have failed. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we have one who absorbed the payment, the punishment, and the destruction that you and me and all of the chosen of God deserved. Jesus obeyed perfectly and yet he was destroyed by God for us. He obeyed when we couldn't, and he was punished and destroyed where we should have been. That is why in Christ we see God's covenant fulfilled and why God is not a liar. a wholly chosen, treasured people for his own possession, Jew and Gentile alike, bound by faith in Christ, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore, just as God promised to Abraham. It's happened. It is happening. And as those dearly loved and chosen by God, you and I, we are called to obey him as an expression of worship and out of our love for him. Because it is the love and the life of God in Christ, in us, that both inspires and enables us to live the obedient life. It's the love of God for us and in us, and the life of God in us that inspires and enables us to be able to live obediently as we ought, to be able to live the Christ life. And so as his own We absolutely should take seriously the command to obey God. But when we fail, not if, when we fail, we run to God, not from him. 
we look to, not away from the cross of Jesus Christ, where every sin was paid for in full. And then we praise him. Chosen, holy, treasured people of God, when you sin and you will, you run to God. You look to the cross and you praise him for it. So my friends, in closing, we, we stand on this side of the center point of history. Jesus Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. For 4,000 years, his coming was foretold. And for all that time, the chosen of God longed to see and know what it is that we have come to see and know in Christ. His promise to Abraham has been and is being fulfilled with each new soul that he calls to himself. My friends, God is not putting together a team in a schoolyard. He's putting together a holy family and an eternal kingdom in his name. And his kingdom has no geographical, no ethnic, and no social boundaries. It is the new and it is the true Israel designed to reflect his glory. And it is made up of men and women and boys and girls of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, of both the firstborn and the last, of the oldest and the youngest, of the good and the bad, of the rich and the poor, of those that the world sees as least likely people just like you and me. So as we dive into this next series over the next few weeks, ask God, my friends, to open your mind, your eyes, and your heart to the joy of his sovereign choosing, to the magnificence of his everlasting faithfulness and seriousness as to how you are living in response to him both individually and communally as his holy nation. Because my friends, he is everything that you and I ever need. And he is what this world is longing for. And they need to know him. Let's pray. Our holy and our heavenly father, how we thank you that among all the peoples of the world, we get to hear and respond in faith to the gospel of your precious Son. In your grace, we have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and spiritual death and into your kingdom of light and eternal life. You did not need us, but you chose a people for yourself to set your love upon. We marvel at and worship you for such grace in choosing us as descendants of Abraham through faith and then for loving us as your sons and daughters because of Christ. Out of love for you, help us to obey your command to love you because you first loved us and then to love those that you have put around us as we already love ourselves. Thank you, Father, that in Christ the punishment we, re we deserve for having broken your law has been paid in full and that eternal life is ours. God, let us worship you not only as the God, but as our God and help us to reflect you and speak of you to those who do not know you 
and have not worshiped you. We pray for those that we love who are lost and who have not yet believed. We ask that in your mercy you would choose them as you have chosen us. Give them the same faith that you have given us and forgive them as you have forgiven us and raise them to new life as you have done in and for us. May all the world come to know, believe in, and worship you both now and forever according to your perfect will. We love and trust you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.